Would you like to lose some weight? Well, who wouldn't? Well, guess what? Good luck with that because the world is stacked against you. I've got two of the greatest TV weight loss experts ever here to help explain that. I'm Brad Pimbitic. This is the Why I'm Not podcast, and this is Why I'm Not Losing Weight. Why? Why? I'm not. Why? I'm not. Why? I'm not. Why? I'm not. Welcome to Why I'm Not with Brant Pimbitic, the podcast that explores the latest trends, fads, beliefs, and addictions from all sides and tries to remind you before you judge it, try to understand it. After that, you're on your own. This week, Why I'm Not Losing Weight. And now, from AfterBuzz Studios, here's your host. Brant Pinvidic. All right, so you've got a few extra little pounds on you. So does basically everybody in America. We all know the, f- the stats. America's kind of fat. Half of America is overweight. Everybody talks about it. Great. But if you think about it, basically all of America actually wants to lose weight, and effectively kind of nobody's able to do that. Think about that for a minute. How is it possible that an entire population wants something but can't really figure out how to do it? Well, really, it's super, super simple and very, very complicated. All you really have to do is eat less and move more. That's the simple part. But what complicates it is your brain and your biological makeup and your genetic programming is telling you to do the exact opposite. It's like, damn. So overriding that on its own is a very difficult fight, just on its own. But it's really not a level playing field. The food industry, the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and the weight loss industry is kind of motivated to keep you from actually losing the weight. They just want you to kind of try or stay fat. That's good with them, too. To explain how all this works, I brought in two guests I'm really excited about. My first is a longtime colleague and friend of mine, J.D. Roth. Now, he's responsible for the biggest loser and extreme makeover weight loss edition, two of the biggest weight loss TV franchises in history And he knows how to get weight off people. I've seen him. I've watched him do it. He was the one who did all the contestants and got them to lose the weight. And the other, from the other side of the world, is a weight loss specialist named Paul McKenna. He's effectively the most successful TV weight loss person in the entire UK, arguably the world. And he uses mental techniques. He actually started out as a hypnotist. So they're here to help explain why you, why me, why everybody isn't losing weight. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Why I'm Not podcast. I'm Brad Vidic. This is the podcast where I try to explain all of the fads and the trends and the crazy things people get hyped up about that I don't really understand by interviewing the people that do. And what I've learned in my motto is just because I don't get it doesn't mean it's not right. It usually means that I'm kind of the jackass and not the righteous one. But when I speak of the righteous one, everybody knows I'm talking to my co-host to the left, the screen junkie, the after buzz legend, Roxy Strayer. How are you, sweetie? Super righteous. Very righteous. Now, this is kind of a cool topic for you because you are thin and beautiful. Thank you. But you have recently lost 20 pounds. I have, and I've worked my butt off at it. I really worked hard. Well, what's sort of good and bad is that we'll probably come up with some things today that you'll be like, oh my God, why did I work so hard? If I would (laughs) have seen this podcast six months ago, I could have shed it like that. Crap. No, that's not really going to happen because guess what? It's not easy. But we will figure it out. Also, in the producer's chair today, the man himself, 
getting ready to lose 20 pounds, right, Christian? Well, Christian 10 Blatt. years ago, I actually lost 25 pounds. You did? It was a little uh, in-office uh, competition. Who could lose the most? So right. I was motivated as hell. Right. And I lost it, and I won it. And I kept a lot of it off, but at that point I wasn't as driven. I lost weight again for my wedding in 2009, and then I was like, I'm kind of in this range where I could lose some more. Right. I definitely could. You're in the comfortable range. Yeah, right? I'm very comfortable. Now. I mean, first of all, I'm married, so what do I need to be thin for? <laughs> but I would say that that falls. Okay, so you take the obese people who are like 50 pounds or more overweight that are clearly sort of overweight fat. Yeah. And then you take the sort of weird models, super, super thin, ultra fit people. That's a small percentage. And then you take the rest of everybody, and everybody's kind of like, yeah, I could probably lose 5 or 10 pounds. I'd like to be a little thinner. But they're like, it's so comfortable where I am, and that's where most of us live, right? Well, for me, why it started was that day when I'm like, oh, my God, I weigh 199 pounds. Like, Ooh. one more, I'm going to get to 200. Yeah, so you don't look like, tall enough to be No, 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 I pounds. definitely was not tall enough to be that. I'm, yeah. pro- I'm not tall enough to be what I am now, but I definitely <laughs> wasn't tall enough to be 199. So, yeah, I think some people have that moment where they're driven. And I'm not thin, but I'm just thinner than I was before, and yeah. I feel good about that. As somebody who seems very thin to me, yeah. why is this important to you, Brant? Um, listen, I, I, I wrestle just like everybody else, right? Like, I am not in as good a shape as I was in my prime, and I struggle a little bit more than I have um, before. Like, I used to, if I wanted to drop five pounds, I would just be like, it would take me two days, and I'd be right back to fighting self. Um, but lately I've found that I'm doing that, oh, i got to change my eating habits and slim down to keep my shirts from bulging. I'm doing that like every month I'm having to do that, so that's a struggle. And I've just noticed a real shift in society is everybody is looking for that weight loss sort of magic, right? Solution, yeah. The solution, and if I can tell you a little story time now. I would love that. So everybody's been looking for the solution, and I was just like everybody else. I didn't know anything about weight loss at all, and then I took a job at Three Ball Entertainment um, where I became the president and, and, and had a good run there, love those guys. And that's where I met J.D. Roth sort of through that process, and they were producing The Biggest Loser. It was their golden franchise and everything that that company was. And so I came in blind, and I just basically said, like, well, why aren't you guys producing more weight loss shows? And they were like, oh, I don't know. We never sort of thought about doing anything more. And I was like, well, let me go sell some weight loss shows. So we went out and sold a lot of weight loss shows and got a lot of people to lose weight. And what I noticed was is JD had a sense of how which contestants would lose weight and which wouldn't. He could tell by their casting tape. She's like, I'm sorry, she won't lose the weight or there's no way he'll get thin. Or it's like, get her, she will be thin because he understood the mental process. And I never understood that at all till producing so many episodes of television. And we did a show called I I Used to Be Fat, which was on MTV, and it was about kids who grew up fat and were going from high school to college. And the idea of meeting an entire new city and a new group of friends and still being Fat Jenny was overwhelming, and they were willing to give up their summer and their entire lives just to get thin for that first time they'd go meet people at college. And it was an amazing sort of cool idea. But what happened was is the families and the people connected to these poor kids were dragging them down almost purposely. Like, they were, we never dealt with sabotage for our contestants before because we'd always had them in a closed setting. And so that was so disturbing. And that's when I started to realize that there is such a mental piece to the weight loss puzzle. And everything I see in the industry and everything I see about big corporate dude dads that they figure out how to work the system and you know when we did the political podcast you're like oh my god like there's a world going on there to dictate what the public does 
And that's what's happening in weight loss is it's like, it's not really about helping people lose weight. It's getting them into your program or get them to buy your Bowflex or getting them to buy this. It's like, it's an entire industry. And the truth is, as we're going to find out today, as we talk to two of the greatest weight loss experts in this world, is that it's really a mental thing more than it is a physical thing. How did you lose the weight? I just, you know, people have been asking me that. And I don't have a simple answer other than I ate less and I exercised more. Uh, Mentally, I'm a pretty strong-willed person. I know that might be a weird phrase, but I decided it was something I really wanted. And so I made a goal. I made a resolution. I was going to go to the gym three times a week. I was going to eat a little healthier. And it kind of just worked. So do you feel like you're stronger than the rest of the people who can't do it? I don't think that's fair to say. I feel like people can do it. I feel like people definitely can do it. If I could do it, I mean, I I was eating an additional four cookies a day. Right. Just because I liked it. And because I wasn't fat. Right. I was just a little heavier than I wanted to be. So do you think the other people that aren't doing that, are they lazy? No, I think people have different issues to overcome. And I think that everybody's got a different story. And mine was, you know, I saw my grandfather pass away from being obese. And I saw my father, who struggled with things his whole life in terms of weight loss. And he became a bodybuilder. And I just figured, you know, I'm in my 20s. I might as well start this journey earlier as opposed to later. You know, I I used to feel a lot like that, where it was like you could just make the decision to eat less and move more. And the more I got into the process of how the weight loss puzzle works and the mentality behind it, I realized, like I said in the opening, is that it's not really fair because everything is built around not making that easy. And there's a whole study and there's lots of internet stuff. Like they scientifically engineer a Dorito to be so good that your body can't help but crave another one. That's what they do when they design their snacks. It's not like they just figure it out and throw it out there. They they need you to buy more, to eat more, to crave more. Craveability is the word they use now for addiction. It's like kind of like the cigarette industry, but really it's like this nutritional world. And so for regular people doing real life stuff, working in, you know, hectic jobs and having kids and doing all that stuff, like it's not just about, oh, I just make a different decision and not have some snacks after work today or eat three less cookies. That's just really hard to do. But should these companies be making less delicious things no. because we can't turn them down? No, I don't think so. Because I'm, like I said, I'm a big proponent of the free market and, and you should deal with it. I just feel like it's there's a little bit of subterfuge going on. And that it's, as much as I wasn't a big fan of the sort of cigarette warning label, you know, details that they put on, it just seems silly. But there's enough in the open about cigarettes that if you're a dumbass enough to smoke, it's like, okay, you make that decision on your own, off you go. You're not, but back in the 50s and 60s, it was sort of like they were kind of tricking you because they weren't telling you what the details and how bad it was and how addictive it was, right? And I feel like we're moving towards that in the food industry a little bit, is that at some point we're going to realize, ooh, yeah, not really fair because this kind of stuff was engineered so you couldn't put down the Twinkie kind of stuff. That's mm-hmm. what I think. Um, so we need more information. It's not Yeah. That- 
And I think that if you want to lose weight, guess what? It's really, really hard. And it's not something you can just like do overnight. And, Definitely. Yeah. And I'm absolutely not saying yeah. it was easy for me, and I'm sure it's even harder for other people. Right. And I just think that, like all those infomercial things and buying the Bowflex and the Norda Track and all those kind of things, it's like that's not going to help you because unless you mentally can make the decision to do it, which you have probably haven't been doing, having a new piece of equipment, you might think it's cool for a day or three days or a week. But how did you lose the weight for your wedding? Because you, you know, had wild motivation, right? Yeah, I was wildly motivated the two times, one for the bet and one for the wedding. The first thing I did, the very first thing I did, I didn't drink regular soda anymore, and then very quickly I stopped drinking diet soda because that makes you hungrier, and I would just drink iced tea. And just you cut out all that sugar from soda, I would have lost probably 10 pounds just with that because right. I would have a, a few in a day, a few cups yeah, in a day. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I was focused. I went to the gym. I had a gym in my building, so that made it easy. I didn't have to pay money because that's always like a – oh, do I really want to spend that money to join a gym so I could go to gym for free? And I went probably three, four times a week, and I just ate a lot better. And it was that simple. All right, so here's my question of the day. Fat shaming. Is it acceptable, not acceptable? Does it help? What should we be doing as a society? It's obviously really bad on our healthcare system, on people. They're dying early. Like, that's not in debate at this point. Like, People who are wildly overweight or quite a bit overweight or just overweight are less healthy. They live not as long. It's a drain on everybody. Is, should society be a little bit more aggressive on that? Or where are we? What do we do? You should never put shaming next to the word. So whatever it is. But I think they, they called it fat shaming so that you stop talking about it. Absolutely. So, no, you're using the correct term. Right. Us as a society, that's a huge problem, that we aren't giving jobs to people because of their weight or that we're looking at them differently. It's the same thing that happened with smoking. Now right. there are different sections you can do it in. We look down on it. But when it comes to fat shaming, of course that's not something that I think we should be doing. Education is very is, important. Is that, a, is that a thing? Like, what a thing. If they had coined the phrase smoke shaming right at the start of when smoking started to be bad, if this, if, uh, believe me, if the cigarette industry knew what they knew now, that's exactly what they would have done. And they would have made it sort of a personal choice, freedom, not your fault, and you should not be smoke shaming me. And it would have the same cultural, a little bit of the same cultural effect as fat shaming. Now, not obviously as dramatic because it's not who you are, how you look, about how you feel yourself. But in general, is that has that taken away some of the sort of self-responsibility? It's also a little different because smoking has a huge problem with secondhand smoke and how you affect the people around you. Fat shaming is different because if somebody is fat, it doesn't mean because you're sitting close to them, you're also fat. Okay. So fair. I find there to be a small difference there, right. but enough that... I'm actually lean towards, I'm okay with that. You should be happy however you're happy and do your thing. I just think what, what's happened is is people have this drive to lose weight and they really don't understand the science behind it. And the science behind it isn't about calories. It's not about what you're, how you're exercising or when. It's really about mentally overcoming your sort of the natural things out there to make you not make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and JD really puts this in, in great perspective. So let's, let me show you the interview. I sat down with JD. He came to the office. We sat down and talked a little bit about his book. Um, he really has been at the forefront of how to do weight loss when it's absolutely necessary. I mean, when you produce a TV show and spend millions of dollars on episodes, you need people to lose weight. And so they were able to tap in mentally how to get people committed to doing that. And that's why I think you see when they're out of the show, 
you know, they have a relatively good success rate, but there's still people that go right back to how fat they were before because motivation is so good on TV. But he really understands how to get you to lose weight. That's all there is to it. So uh, let's have a look. J.D. Roth, ladies and gentlemen. never been overweight a day in your life. True. How on earth do you have any knowledge on what it takes to lose weight? It's a good question. I have no degree in exercise physiology. I have no degree in nutrition. I have no degree in any science-based medical background. Uh, nothing. I didn't even graduate college. So uh, to say that I'm an expert in something means that I have had to live it for a long period of time and see it from the inside out. And I don't think being overweight is as much um, uh, a food problem as it is an emotional problem. So what you perceive as hunger pain is really emotional pain. And once you realize that and you kind of zero in on what the emotional pain is, then the rest is easy. The weight just falls off. You start making good decisions because emotionally you're in charge of your life again. But with so much of America overweight, are you telling me that all those Americans have emotional pain and that's the only reason they're heavy? Well, the ones who are very obese, yes, 100%. Okay. The ones that have 10, 15, 20 pounds, I would say they've recreated a kind of pleasure loop in their mind. And so they're having a crappy day, their kid you know, did something wrong, their dog pooped on the carpet, the car door doesn't work, they get to their office, their boss is yelling at them on the way in. By the time they sit down in the chair that doesn't work in their office, the only thing that sounds good is opening that top drawer in their office, which has a Kit Kat in it. And once you've created that pleasure principle loop of, I feel like crap, I see a chocolate, I feel good. I feel like crap, I see chocolate, I feel good. I feel like, and you do it over and over and over again, you're now, your subconscious has created this loop. And you can no longer break that loop. And now you need two Kit Kats. It's like any form of addiction. Right. One drink's not enough, you need five drinks right. to all of a sudden get that same dopamine release. In the end, all of us are just chasing dopamine. That's it. That's it. Whether it's an athlete who's in shape, whether it's a guy like you, that dopamine release when you sell a show or you have a magic moment or, or you're, you're proud of your, your kid or your wife, boom, dopamine gets released. So everyone's chasing that moment. And food can have that same power. So the sort of rumor is, the discussion, the scientific sort of evidence that people talk about is that a Dorito is scientifically designed Engineered. To you, engineered to give you that dopamine so that the normal person can't fight against it. Is it, that true? It, it's not a fair fight. If you have something that has been scientifically engineered to have the perfect amount of salt to sugar ratio to release just at the right time, you cannot not have another cookie. Yeah. A thin person. I, I've seen you eat. Yeah. You, it, you get that release, boom, it's, yeah. it's go time. Yeah. And then I know the type of personality you are. Hey, if one cookie's good, ten's got to be better. Yeah. If one Big Mac tastes good, it's two for five bucks. I'm going for two, right? And I think that's what happens. And so people get lost in that rabbit hole, and there's no way you can get out from that. Yeah. And so who, who in this world right now makes the most, stands to gain the most from that system of our American well, eating thing? let's be honest. Yes. In the meat, you know, dairy, sugar, they have all the money. Right. They can promote. They can train. They can, the milk industry can give little cute cartons of milk to kids when they're young so they have that nostalgic feel when they drink that milk. So they can, in, in effect, they can create and, and change your, the habits that you have. Last time I checked, Big Broccoli had no support. That's right. Right? So right. without the support, 
the big agriculture companies like meat and dairy and they have their way with society because all those images that are portrayed to us, when you have Clay Thompson, world champion, Golden State Warrior saying, man, it's all milk. Milk gives me it. That's why I can make that shot. It's because right. of the milk. Well, what is a 12-year-old kid going to believe? Right. He's going to believe he's got to drink milk. Over milk. Yes, yeah. of course. And then that creates this cycle of behavior. So now you then get older and you start telling your kids, hey, if you want to make that jump shot, you got to drink your milk. And so pretty soon there's this pattern of behavior that's created. And then you have a society where two-thirds of the people are either overweight or obese. And in 20 years from now, more than half the United States will have type 2 diabetes. But here's the thing. Like, it's only half America that's overweight. Right. There's guys like you and myself and, and everybody that, that are in the same system, seeing the same commercials, the same elements, doing the same thing every day, basically eating at the same restaurants and whatnot and staying thin What's the difference? Genetics load the gun. Decisions pull the trigger. So theory being, genetically you may come from a family that burns calories fast and it doesn't matter what you eat, right? It doesn't catch up to you. George Burns smoked a cigar until he was 100, right? There's all these people have the genetic freaks, the genetic outliers. But for most of us, we have genetics in our family that don't support um, the decisions that we make. And if you don't look at food as the very foundation of health, then you're missing the point. So with my decisions that I make, knowing that I don't have great genetics, I can make, I, everyone in my family is overweight. So I can make really good decisions and never be overweight. So right. although genetics loaded my gun, the decisions that I make each day, the tough decisions that I make, are the ones that decide whether that trigger is going to get pulled or not. Um, all right, so listen, you've been making weight loss happen on TV for most of your career. Yeah. I would say without question, nobody in TV land has ever done anything like what you've been able to do with people losing weight. Why is it that people lose weight on TV easier, more effectively, more drastically? What, what are you doing differently? Right. It's funny. Accountability is a big part of it. When you know a million people are going to watch you, it's like, oh, do I really want to be embarrassed at my next office party? Right. The same way, like I've been talking to the doctors at, at a, a famous hospital here called Cedar sinai I said, well, how do you get people to comply, you know? And they say, disease. It's interesting. You can't get people to comply until they're dying? Right. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why wait until you're dying until you're going to decide to change your ways? And so what television does is it amplifies moments like that and in effect says, hey, everyone is going to know whether you were successful or not. That's a big carrot to dangle. Right. Instead, if you go to your office and there's 100 people who know you on your floor, and you say, I'm going to lose 100 pounds this year, and you tell nobody. The chances of you being successful are almost zero. However, if you go into that office party of 100 people, and you plant the flag in front of everyone, and wear a shirt that says, in 2017, I'm losing 100 pounds, the chances of you losing that weight increase dramatically. Right. So why reinvent the wheel? Just do what you know works. But putting yourself out there in harm's way, knowing that if you fail, everyone in your office is going to know, is what will stop you from eating that cookie in the first place. So do you really want to change, or are you just talking? Because if you really want to change, you tell everyone you know, including the mailman. Yeah. And it, you know, if I think about how many times I heard the same thing, like, oh, if I could just get on the Biggest Loser Ranch, I'd be able to lose weight. If I could just get an extreme, I'd lose weight. If I could just... I, I got a good shows, story about that. Everybody does that. Yeah, we have a guy um, who uh, owned a few pizza restaurants, pizza parlors in, in uh, Southern California. Came to get on Biggest Loser five seasons in a row. Made it to finals casting a couple times. 
Didn't do it. Came back again the next year, again the next year, again the next year. Finally, he makes it to the finals, where we take a very select group and we spend a week with them in what we call a boot camp. Effectively, we watch how they eat, how they work out, what right. they say, who they make friends with. And it turns out two people at that boot camp did not get medically cleared. They were too sick to be on The Biggest Loser. He was one of them. Oh. I had to go tell him, listen, after five seasons and getting so close and trying, you are not medically cleared um, to continue. I'm, I apologize. I then went to the other hotel room to tell the other guy, hey, you're, you're not cleared. The other guy said, listen, I'm already here. Instead of me leaving, is there like a release I could sign and I could stay and learn and take the nutrition classes and follow the workouts and just learn as much as I can because I'm going back and I'm doing this. And I was like, you know what? Absolutely. The pizza guy got mad, yelling and screaming, and this is BS. And how zipped the suitcase up right in front of me, grabbed a suitcase, walked out and left and never came back. The punchline is he's still fat. Two months later, he died of a heart attack. Oh. Huh. And his wife no longer has a husband. His kids no longer have a dad. The pizza that people that love to go to his pizza place and see his smiling face don't have that friendly face anymore. And I can't help but think. If he would have just done it after the first time he didn't get on the show, or the right. second, or the third, or the fourth, or even the fifth, the day he went home, right. he would still be on the planet. The other guy who said, I want to stay and learn, he killed it that week, so much so, I went back to the doctor and I said, well, why can't he be on the show? And he said, you know, there is another test we could run, but it's $5,000. I said, well, we'll pay for it. And he got medically cleared and he ended up losing 200 pounds. Oh, wow. And he's still alive. So when you think about attitude and you think about what you're going to bring to it, what do you, do you really need a show to get thin? Or can you do it and save your own life? What, whatever you put in in life is what you get out. Um, and I think that the moral of that story obviously is you can do it on your own. You don't need us. And if you don't get on the show, it doesn't mean you should just get fatter and wait until next year and right. hope you get on again. But it does feel like everything is against the person <clears throat> making it and making it on their own because the weight loss industry is a pretty big industry. There's a lot of money going on, and, and everybody's sort of flogging their version of how to lose weight. Right, which are all, to me, you know, gimmicks. Anything restrictive is a gimmick. So you can't eat this. You can only have that. Um, calorie restriction. You can only hold on to that for so long. Right. So diet, in a way, is kind of a bad word, because diets always have a beginning. And always have an end. Always have an end. That's a problem. If it ends... So does your discipline. So does your decision-making, right? So does your commitment. Yeah. And so if there's a beginning and an end to something, it's never going to work. I mean, honestly, nobody goes into marriage um, thinking it's going to end. Right. If, you, if you knew that every marriage was going to end, it'd be, obviously it'd be very different, very right. different relationship. And people's relationship with food is tied deeply, not only evolutionarily speaking, but emotionally to family and to you know, difficult parts of their life when food got them through it. So, all right, let's just cut to it. it uh, you know, so many people out there, everybody's like, I'd love to lose 20 pounds. I'd love to lose 30 pounds. So many people out there. And you got Jillian hawking the Norda track, and you got this person who this <laughs> diet, and, and everybody's got their version of it. How does a normal person lose 25 pounds? I'll tell you. First of all, is this how you always do interviews? You sit there and someone sits here? Is that like? mm, no, so, usually in the studio. So here's, here's the first thing I would do. Stand, stand up and switch places with me. Okay. Go ahead and sit down. Okay. Now, okay, so just making the switch right here affects your brain. You're now looking at a different side of my face. You're looking at a different corner of the room. People get set. They have their office set up. They sit in the same desk. 
at the exact same position, doing the exact same thing day after day, year after year, sometimes for decades. They don't even know the last name of the person they work next to. They only know this habit that they have. So reaching into the drawer to grab the Kit Kat becomes not even a decision. It becomes just something that's in their brain that they know how to do. And so they just keep doing it over and over again. So if you shift your life and you move things around and you drive to work differently and you, you use uh, the fork instead of your left hand, you use it with your right hand. People say, how do I lose weight? I say, clean your room, clean your bedroom. And they're always like, wow, cleaning your room burns that many calories? Yeah. The answer is no, it burns no calories. But when your eyes first open in the morning and you see chaos, that's just a microcosm of what's going on in your mind. And I've been in bedrooms of people that are 100, 200 pounds overweight that you can't believe. Years of unopened mail, laundry that hasn't been done, food, plates, dishes, kids' toys. It's a disaster area. And so empty it out completely. Completely empty. Put a bed, a chair, and some drawers, and that's it. Now when you go to sleep, you're already calm. It's kind of a mindfulness kind of thing. You wake up when your eyes open. The first thing you see is organization. You see calm. And you've already won the first battle of the day, which is convincing your subconscious things are okay. Don't you feel like you got to be 100 pounds overweight to have to make that leap? I'm thinking like if you want to lose 20 pounds, that's why everybody's buying NordaTrack or, you know, the flex belt or whatever because it's like they don't want to rip the shit out of their bedroom and start again. They just want a quick fix or something they can just tweak in their life. Right, I could say 20 pounds, 20 pounds or 25 well, or 30 pounds. 10 years from now, as you gain half a pound a month, right. six pounds a year, 20 becomes 80 in the next decade. And then you're just one of the two-thirds of America that is, that's obese. And I, a lot of it is just straight decision-making. For people who are 20 pounds overweight, it's the weekend barbecue. It's the weekend warrior. They only do stuff. only move on the weekends. It's the desk jockeys all day long and sitting at their desk. Then they get home. What do they do? Sit on the computer. They don't have energy. And before you know it, you don't have to be that overweight to be very unhealthy. In fact, on my show, we had a, a chef on there. He was 35 pounds overweight. He said, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. I feel like I'm dying. I said, well, he was auditioning. I said, well, you don't even look overweight enough to be on my show. He's like, I'm telling you right now, if you run my blood, it's not going to be good. And he was so adamant about it. And his father had died of a heart attack at 50. Right. And like everyone in his family had heart issues. And I thought, you know what? All right, I will run your blood work. So we ran it. His triglyceride level, which is a direct correlation to heart disease, normal's 150. 300 is considered ticking time bomb. 500, and you probably have pancreatitis and need to be hospitalized. That's how serious it is. This came back at 678. The doctor, I've never, in, I've worked with people 600 pounds. Yeah. I've never had a doctor say, he needs to be in my office immediately today. I've never had that before. He was 30, 35 pounds overweight, that's it. Right. And the doctor said, get him here immediately. He needs to be examined immediately. Now, I put him on the program, the big fat truth. He starts eating plant-based. 10 days later, we do his blood work again. The doctor had to run it twice because she didn't believe it. His triglyceride level went from almost 700 to 111. There's not a medication on the planet that can artificially reduce it right. that much in a year, let alone 10 days. So I go back to the same argument. Why is a doctor not telling you, hey, I could put you on all these medications. But you won't follow. Or come here, you could just eat better. Yeah. Because it's not reimbursable. Because if I put you on a medication for type 2 diabetes two months from now, guess what you need to do? Get more. 
you need to come back. Yeah. And I need to look at it. And then I check this box. And when I check that box, I get paid. Pharmaceutical company gets paid. And everyone's happy. Yeah. And the That's system the keeps the system works. And then cute girls come into my office with lunches. And then if I sell enough of these things, yeah. I get to take my wife to Hawaii and stay in a suite. Right. So why wouldn't you do that? What is not reimbursable is, hey, you need to eat more broccoli. Oh. Because if I tell you that, you won't come back. And right. if you don't come back, you don't get paid. I don't get paid. And then I don't get to go to Hawaii. And then no cute girl comes no to take girls. me to lunch. And then, right? So the system is not set up for health. The system is set up for sickness. It's, it's set up for disease. Right. It's not set up for prevention. And because of that, insurance, now you see what happens, right? All of a sudden, now there's an insurance problem. How much money do things cost? And when no one can be insured and millions of dollars. In the end, really, it should, the business should be about prevention. If you can right. prevent anyone from getting a chronic illness, that should be where the money is. Right. It's like a car. You change your oil. People it's like a dentist. tune their car yeah. way more than they tune their body. That's right. Or their emotional mind way more than their relationships. If you don't think that having a bad marriage makes you eat a piece of chocolate cake, then you, you really aren't that in touch. Right. Because it does. It makes some guys drink. It makes some guys cheat. Right. It makes a lot of people eat. And eating is the only addiction that you're faced with at minimum three times a day. If you're uh, an alcoholic, you could not have alcohol around you. If you're a drug addict, you gotta go find the drugs. They're, right. they're not popping up. If you're a food addict, you have to eat you your drugs three times a day. Yeah. Have to. So you're faced with your addiction so much more than anyone else who has a different type of addiction. So you've been plant-based now, no meat. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. I, I cannot say that the occasional chocolate chip cookie does not tempt me and that I fall to that temptation and eat it. Well, because you're a cookie guy. I'm a cookie guy. Right. But here's the difference. If I walked you over to this wood table and you slammed your head down on the wood table, it would hurt. Yes. And it'd be a bruise and it'd be swollen. And if you back away from the table and you don't do it again, it heals. Right. Quick. But if three hours later at your next you meal, do it again. you slam your head on that table again. Yeah. And then at dinner you do it again, and then before bed you do it again, and then at 7 a.m. you do it. Pretty soon it's going to be so full of scar tissue and swollen, you're not even going to know your name in about a week. Got it. So if you're going to do that, that's fine, but then step away from the table and allow your body to heal itself as quickly as possible. Nobody's perfect. Right. But I, I, I would always strive for perfection and then not associate any shame with the lack of perfection. Just get back on the program. There's no infomercial selling any product, weight belt, or door detracting that can just fix it easy. It's really eat less, move more. Well, if there was, right. no product would ever be invented again. Because right. be, one would be work, one. and the guy would be on an island somewhere sipping right. Mai Tais, right? right? So the fact is, they don't work, and nothing comes in three easy installments at 3 a.m. Right. Nothing. Nothing. So, and I don't believe that eating less is the way to lose weight and get healthy. I actually believe eating a massive volume of food is the way to lose weight and get healthy. I just believe it needs to be the right food. I could fill this room with strawberries. And you, I can tell you, you can eat them all in one day. And I mean it. You couldn't possibly eat that. Right. But because that, that is so nutritionally dense, you don't need to eat the room full of strawberries. You're used to eating calorically dense foods. Yeah. And the second you eat that calorically dense food that has no nutritional value, you know what your body says? I want more. This is fantastic. Give me another one of those. Yeah. Give me another one. Because Big reward, it, little work. Right, and it never gives the body what it needs, so it constantly asks for more. I also know, I've known you a long time, this is the longest I've ever seen you sit still. Right. 
So the fact is, you're constantly moving all day long, and the way your brain works, it's like a pinball machine, it's burning calories even as you're thinking because there's so much going on in your head. So not everyone is genetically set up like you. And for the people who say I have the fat gene, no. You have the bad decisions gene. <laughs> That's the one you have. There's no such thing as the fat, fat gene. gene. You have the I didn't get any education in what I should be eating gene. You got the my family makes bad decisions gene, and then you just soaked that up as a kid, and now you've got it as well. So you just need to change your decision making. It's not as hard as people think. Because here's the thing. Nobody really has had more success in the literal sense. Sure, people have sold books and people have right. had Atkins diets and stuff, but I've watched you do it to hundreds and hundreds of people. I love doing Legitimately it. lose weight. So even though you don't have degrees in all these other fancy things, I kind of call you an expert. I, um, thank you. And it's no different than when I look at you and say, man, I believe in you. What can we do together? It's that energy, right, that you create, that sort of energy ball yeah. that you create together that inspires people. And so really it's just inspiring somebody to do what they already know they need to do. So your book, The Big Fat Truth, available yep. it's available. Right? It's available everywhere. And I also sold it as a TV show to Z Living under the same name, The Big, Big Fat, Fat Truth, Truth, which premieres June 13th. Um, and it uses the same sort of mental exercises and shows people how they can get the weight off, including ex-Biggest Loser contestants who put the weight on. I bring the first guy who ever won The Biggest Loser, who gained all the weight back, and I bring him out of the darkness into the light to say, hey, this happened. So what? Let's find out why it happened so we can prevent it from ever happening again. Wow. All right, J.D., thank you so much for coming down. I really appreciate it. There you go, J.D. Roth, ladies and gentlemen. He's the best. He's good, right? He's really good. And his book is doing well, and it's a lot about the big, the biggest loser contestants that have gained weight back and how he's had to go through and look at that mental picture again. Because it's the hardest thing to keep it off, yeah. not just to lose it. Yeah, because the, the decisions you make that cause you to gain weight are really, really hard to, to change. Right. I think it's interesting that he's working with not curvy people, right. you know, not people like you talked about who woke up and gained 15 pounds slowly and that right. just got comfortable. These are people who have actual things that are going on, right. issues that they need to overcome, and it, it's a whole different ballgame. It's definitely a whole different ballgame, but I do, I think, like, all of the casting we did for all our weight loss stuff, it always started the same way. Like, they weren't always fat. Some of them were, but most of them weren't always fat. It's just they started to gain weight, something else happened, then they gained more weight, and they didn't feel good about that, and, they, and it just sort of, like, it compiles onto itself. And so, you know, what he says that makes a lot of sense is it's, it's all about the mental part of the decisions you make. Trying to come up with a system around how to eat less or how to exercise more that doesn't address the decisions you make to eat this or that is destined to fail. And everybody is fine with that in all of the industries. They're okay with you failing losing weight. Right. I don't think it's okay to put your life into the choices of what you eat that day. And I think that that's something that we touched upon a little bit. Yeah. Well, and here's what I what I was fascinated about, and it, and it got me thinking after, is like one of the things he's, he's, he hit right on the nail on the head was every other addiction that people have, you don't have to face it all day, every day. It comes in a certain time. Like he said with the, with the alcohol, like, okay, well, you go a lot of part of the day where alcohol isn't sitting right in front of you. No matter what, you are basically faced with food three times a day. 
your body is like, I need to eat. And everybody around you is eating at least three times a day. So you have to make this decision against your natural addictive tendencies three times a day, every single day. And that's why it's so hard. Yeah. So it's also the only addiction that if you don't give in even a little, you're going to die. So yeah. you have to give in a little, just not too much. Right. And that makes it so hard. And like when he, you know, when he said, like, if you whacked your head on the table, it'd make a mark, and, but it would heal if you stepped away from the table. You keep whacking it on the table, it never heals. And that's what people do with food. They stuff themselves with shitty, shitty food over and over again, and you never, your body never, like, recovers from that. So the one thing I, that, I, that I knew, but he put it in good context, is all of the other things that you think of that could help you lose weight are all mental triggers. If you buy a Nordif track or a Bowflex online or the Total Gym, it's because you want something mentally to trigger you to change the things you're doing. And so you don't have to buy one of those things. You just got to make the decision that that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And that is not easy at all. Um, but my next guest is really interesting as well because he focuses only on the mental. He doesn't do any physical stuff. He's not going to tell you how to exercise. He doesn't tell you really even what to eat. It was very controversial when I worked with him the first time when I was running the network and we did a show called I Can Make You Thin based on his first book. And it was basically he was a mentalist named Paul McKenna in the UK, huge celebrity, and he had taken his mental abilities, his mentalist abilities and hypnotherapy abilities and translated that to making people lose weight. And really what he did was basically just program your brain to have associations that you didn't like the food the same way. And it's like if, you know, Roxy would get drunk on tequila and then the thought of it, the smell of it, the taste of it, the look of it, the, the word itself will cause you to sort of heave for years to come sometimes, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so everybody's surprised. Everybody knows that one. So his idea is that mentally it's a very powerful connection, and he can help it sort of basically hypnotize you into having those connections with certain types of food so that you don't have the same reaction. So I thought it was a little bit fruity until I watched him do it. And he did it with my neighbor, and he did it with people I knew. And it was like, wow, this guy is crazy, and he's kind of fun, and he's done really well. And I've seen him do it for other addictions besides food. And he will tell you it is all mental, and that is the only thing stopping you from losing weight is the way you mentally connect to food. So I, he's, on the, yeah, he's on the line right now, so let's get him in here. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Paul McKenna. Paul McKenna, thank you for joining us today, Paul. Pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Brent. I love this. And you're all the way across the pond in London, correct? I am. I'm in London. I miss L.A., uh, but got to say, London's a vibing city. Yeah, and it's been good to you, I think. Yes, it has. Uh, in fact, life's been good to me. Yes, it has. Uh, you know, I've been, I basically told my audience, effectively, that you are the greatest weight loss expert the U.K. has ever seen. Would I be exaggerating? Uh, you'd be underplaying it. In fact, my weight loss system has the highest success rate in the world. In the By world. Time. Number one in the world. Now, yeah. Paul, in simple terms, why is that? That's because diets don't work. We've had 30, 40 years of diets where you starve yourself and you get to go to these cult-like meetings and you stand on the scales of shame and um, what happens is, in the short term, they work great. Um, so they're a con. Because what happens is, you lose the weight, you're losing um, weight, actually muscle mass, not even fat. And um, 
The problem is, is that the diet clubs are not in the weight loss business. They're in the food business. They're selling you low-fat chemical rubbish. And what's happened recently is it's been exposed that fat is not the devil. The scientists, the fraudulent scientists, Ansel Keys, who's behind the disgusting, uh, perverted research about fat being the devil, has been absolutely discredited. Uh, the Maasai tribe in Africa, they live on meat and milk. What the devil is, is sugar. Sugar. Because our National Health Service, all our genius doctors say, of the five things that are most likely to kill you prematurely, sugars behind four of them. So I've joined forces because I've been saying this since the 90s and people before me have been saying it, that sugar is linked to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, liver disease. And we right now have an epidemic. However, the sugar industry has paid fraudulent scientists and set up bogus organizations to try and muddy the waters. And I'm a bit of a food evangelist. Um, I think, hey, we should be able to eat whatever we want and still lose weight. Yeah. Because I know it sounds like an outrageous claim, and I don't expect people to believe it. They look at me and they go, oh, you're just thin, white English guy, right? Um, no, I've been in the trenches for a long time. All my family were overweight, right? So I grew up in a fat family. I understand the mindset. And I don't need to be here tonight. I don't need to ever do anything else in my life ever again. But I'm on a mission. And that is to stop the disgusting, corrupt diet industry or the hate your body industry, as I like to call it, and educate people about how all the decisions about what you eat, when you eat, how you eat, take place in your mind. Yes. Mind like a computer. And you can reprogram it so that suddenly... You can look at food and take it or leave it. Then you're in control and not the food. Now, I remember, Paul, when we did I Can Make You Thin together almost yes. uh, almost 10 years ago. Yes. That was your mission then. And yeah. Yeah, I like that you're a little fiery. That's kind of exciting. But these the world has sort of gone into this mode where I swear to God, if you told people, if you have fast food, you will be 100% dead in five years. Yeah. People would still go eat fast food. So all yeah. the stuff that you're saying about all the things that are bad and sugar is bad is all great. It's the same as whatever people say are bad. The audience, the public doesn't quite get it. Why mentally is it so hard for people to change their eating habits and their lives and lose a little weight? Why is it so difficult mentally? Because um, nobody suddenly wakes up um, 80 pounds overweight, right? And goes, oh, I put on a bit of weight during the night. Uh, what happens is they go from one diet where they begin to have some success and then they fall off the wagon and they go, oh, oh, it's terrible. It's my fault. And the people running these organizations, they're all obese and overweight or pretty much all of them are. And so um, what happens is they then think, right, this year I'm going to do another diet. I'm going to do another one. And then it happens all over again. And after four or five years of doing it, they've gained 80 pounds. Now, by that time, they've slowed their metabolism and they've got very good at storing fat. Because as soon as you starve yourself, your body thinks, crikey, this maniac's trying to starve us. We've got to store fat. We get good at storing fat. We can slow our metabolism. Metabolism is not a death sentence. In fact, you can change your metabolism very easily. Exercise is one of those things. Now, as soon as I say, hey, does anybody here in the room 
um, you know, do exercise, half the hands go up. And I said, what? You mean the other half of you were carried in here? You didn't move your bodies? Because people think going to the gym is exercise. No. Exercise is any movement of your body. And, you know, I ask people, instead of, um, you know, driving around the parking lot for 15 minutes, I ask them to walk that, um, you know, extra distance. You know, um, people, people do this. They watch late night television, you know, with those infomercials that try and sell you an exercise bike that you can never repackage, you know, and stick back in the box and return, <laughs> even though you've got your 30-day guarantee. They think, right, I know what I'll do. I'll buy one of those exercise bikes. And the moment they bought it, they feel better. They feel less guilty. But then what happens is um, they get it back home and they eventually they assemble it and they have two or three goes on it. And then they think, this is too exhausting. I know what I'll do. I'll hang my clothes on it. And they hang more and more and more clothes on it until they've got a little tent, you know, living in one of their rooms. And so my message is, um, if you want to lose weight, eat less and move your body. Um, there's no magic formula of food for weight loss. We've had 30 to 40 years. We have thousands and thousands of diets in print. And their success rate is less than one in 10. Mine is seven in 10. So I may sound a little emphatic. It's because I you're think English. a terrible crime has been perpetrated upon people that are overweight. If you're overweight, I want to say this to you now. It's not your fault. It's not. Whoa. It's the fault of your programming. Your mind is where you make the decisions. And people, I believe, to be terrible people who will profit out of your uh, lack of um, self-worth, and your desperation to lose weight will trick you, con you, and tell you that it's your fault because you haven't got willpower. And imagination is always more powerful than willpower. For example, you know, when you think to yourself, I mustn't have chocolate cake melting in my mouth. You want it, right? Yeah, I do now. Exactly, right? So all your willpower will not stop it. If you imagine that chocolate cake covered in maggots or barber's shop hair floor you know um or even something worse a food you hate suddenly it becomes less attractive now that's because your imagination will suddenly make it unattractive if you imagine eating it and swallowing it with hair on it and you know some food you hate then it'll become even more unattractive so um i didn't just come up with this um i started uh, talking about the dangers of sugar and that um Weight loss, um, Yale University just did a big study and they said weight loss is a behavioral issue. So I don't mind that a lot of people are stealing my ideas now and they're using it and they're trying to incorporate it. But the weight loss clubs can't incorporate it because they can't make any money out of it. Right. So they can tell you eat more slowly, but they've still got to sell you low fat chemical rubbish to make money. And that's how it works out there in the business. And I have to be honest, I watched – Paul McKenna do this with one of my neighbors who was addicted to peanut M&Ms. What do you mean do this? Like you watched him tell people eat less and work out more? I watched him basically hypnotize her into not wanting M&Ms anymore. She ate peanut M&Ms three bags a day for 15 years, and the next day she was like, yeah, I don't want those M&Ms anymore. What I got her to do, actually, Brant, was I got her to think about something she hated. I can't remember what it was. It might have been um, something like anchovies. And I got her to, and this is what I mean when I say the imagination is more powerful than the will, is I got her to think about combining the taste of the peanut M&Ms with anchovies and the texture. 
and running it round their mouth again and again and again. Put some hair from a barbershop floor in there and then chew it and taste it. And suddenly I took the compulsion for the M&Ms with some repulsion. I put them together and it makes an even playing field so she can look at M&Ms in future and take it or leave it. Yeah. Might she just switch over to Kit Kats? Yes, if you don't put in the extra part. Good question. If you don't put in, get your pleasure from somewhere else because everyone in the world is changing their feelings by external means. Drinking, drug taking, gambling, sex, shopping. And of course, the world's drug of choice, food, easily available. Um, you mentioned earlier, Brand, you know, why are we not taking notice? It's because um, you can know all the statistics you want. It won't make any difference. You've got to make an emotional change. And when I work with people who are frightened of flying, you're more likely to be killed putting on your trousers than die in an air crash. You are 44 times safer in a car than in an aeroplane. People imagine over and over again there being no floor in the plane, they see through it, and, and also the plane crashing, and so they create unnecessary, irrational fears and phobias. In the same way, just telling people that chocolate in excessive amounts or sodas or whatever it is is bad for you won't make a damn bit of difference. Yeah. You actually have to make it an emotional, biophysiological change. So what you're saying is there's no infomercial that's going to sell me a product or a food supplement or anything else that helps with weight loss. It really is mental. Right, Roxy? No, because then he's also admitting that 10% of people diets work for. So you might be one of that 10%. Hmm. That's right. Yeah, you know, if you want to waste your money and be one of, take a chance. Oh, by the way, have you met the 10%? They <laughs> life like this. White knuckles. They get up in the morning. All they think about is food. It's like having a second job. Do you want to be one of these obsessive, compulsive nut jobs? Because, oh, no, I can make it through. I can make it through. Oh, oh, oh my God. I had one little bit too much chocolate. Now, and I have to beat myself up all day. Diets are designed to, they're really great courses in how to get fat and feel like a failure. It feels like Americans who are a little fatter than most of the other countries in the world. It's also that side of it, but it's also, like I was saying earlier, is the entire industry around food is geared to make you eat more to eat make you have sugary stuff to make stuff made with corn like the whole world is built on you buying more products making products easier to get to faster tastier it's like it really feels like it, the whole world is against you losing a few pounds it's actually a conspiracy um, whereby multi-billion dollar corporations make a lot of money and i've made some powerful enemies now by attacking these uh, organizations. And I'm not a biologist, but if you want to know the truth about sugar, look at Professor Lustig. Um, uh, he's a Californian uh, uh, biologist. Look at his factual um, uh, expose of the sugar industry. Now, they're not like the tobacco industry. They're much rougher. They've roughed up scientists produced phony research to muddy the waters, and they've also marginalized people that went against them. And uh, they're getting roughed up now, and they deserve it, uh, but not roughed up enough, because sugar is in 75% of things you buy in a supermarket. But in order to stop you from realizing that it is, it's under 50 different names, raw cane, you know, um, uh, all kinds of different things. So when you look at it, unless it's got, you know, look, look at it like this. We're now at an epidemic level of problem. 
like we were with AIDS and smoking, right? But do the governments want to put scary commercials on TV or warn you, warnings on the packets? Of course not, because they're all funded by the sugar industry, aren't they? And so, you know, with AIDS, we thought, crikey, there's a big ep epidemic here. And I don't know about in the United States, but we ran very scary commercials here. Same with smoking. We made it socially unacceptable. We put billboards everywhere and we told everyone, hey, you got to stop. And there was a significant reduction in the amount of, um, of cigarettes being smoked. The same isn't happening with sugar, although um, there is a growing army of biologists that stand behind me and in front of me, I should say, because I'm standing on the shoulder of giants who say that sugar. And when I read this, I thought that can't be true is the most dangerous drug in the world. You're supposed to consume 30 grams a day. One can of soda's got 35. Have you seen that movie, Super Size Me? Indeed. When he stops having, having his fast food and his colas, the man goes jonesing like he's coming off heroin. Right. So that's why I'm so um, almost evangelistical about this, right? You know, I, I, don't, I don't think the people in the... Um, you know, in the day-to-day -day sugar industry, know what they're involved in. The people at the top do. <laughs> I love that. Paul McKenna's fired up today. I like that. Um, yeah. But, Paul, like, for a regular person who's just 15 or 20 pounds overweight, who just wants to lose a little weight, look a little bit better in their jeans, is there anything they can do that's, that's sort of easy, that doesn't require, like, changing your life or everything that's going on? Do you know, I think this is a great question, Brad. And uh, the answer is simply this. Uh, it's a Scandinavian experiment, and we did it in the program that we made a decade ago, right? And um, it's basically this. If I could give you one piece of advice that will astound you. I've noticed that people that are overweight think about food all day long, except when they're actually eating it. And then they shovel it into their mouth as fast as they can. Because when we do anything that reinforces our survival, like eating, we get a release of a happy neurotransmitter called serotonin. So what I encourage people to do is to put the knife and fork down and chew the food 20 times. Now, people that are overweight will say to you, well, that looks weird. No, this looks weird. Right? So put the knife and fork down and chew the food. Imagine you're French, for example. And you chew the food 20 times and then you take the next mouthful. Now, what happens is there's a lag between the signal from uh, the stomach to the brain, the, the ghrelin and the GLP-1 and the PYY, right? The neurotransmitter, right? Uh, and hormones. So what happens is when you eat slowly and consciously, mindfully, mindful and conscious eating, when there's no TV, because if you watch TV and eat, you will eat more. If you listen to the radio, you're online, you're reading a magazine, you will eat much, much more. So what we did on the TV show was we fed people a meal in a diner. Then we fed them the same meal the next day, blindfolded. Blindfolded. So they had to concentrate on the food and nothing else. Now, if you do that, if you, by the way, if you drink alcohol uh, with your meal, it will make you less conscious. And if you can't go a few meals without drinking alcohol, you can drink it afterwards. But if you can't go a few meals without drinking it before, you've got a much bigger problem than weight loss. So <laughs> what I would say is... So here it is, very simple. For many of you, it'll seem alien because maybe you grew up in a house where you just had to grab the food as quick as you can. Or maybe you're like the average American um, who, for example, has to eat their, their lunch in 15 minutes. That's not good. Do you know how long they spend in France eating their lunch? 
I gotta say, like an hour and a half or two hours, because I've been in France walking the streets at lunchtime and everything's closed because they're having a sort of siesta there that time. That's right, 90 minutes. Yeah. And that's why you see less overweight French people. Now, what I'm saying is bite, chew the food, put the knife and fork down if you need to, sit on your hands, and then chew the food. And actually, the taste will develop, the, the mouthfeel, they call it. And the taste will develop, and you'll enjoy it so much more. And then take another bite, and then suddenly, the weirdest thing will happen. Because instead of overriding the full signal with the serotonin, you'll finally be able to hear it, and you'll want to stop, and then leave food on your plate. Now, if you're like me, when I was growing up, um, my parents grew up, you know, in post-rationing warriors. Right. And they finish that food on your plate. There are starving children in, I don't know, some part of the world. And I went, do you know them? They went, what? I said, let's FedEx it to them. They went, don't be like that. I said, I was born like that. I'm a cantankerous person. Anyway, so eventually, that's why everyone in my family was overweight and I wasn't, because I'd leave the food on my plate. Right. And it's, but where do you want the food? Here or on the plate? That's what you've got to ask yourself. Um, Paul, it's fascinating because it feels like really anybody who wants to deal with any of the weight loss meals has to deal with the mental side of it first. Everything I've sort of come through has been like, move more, eat less, but it's really all about mental choices and what you're deciding to do, and none of the other tricks work. It's just how you deal with it. Well, that's right, and just using willpower, you'll fail, or rather 90% of you will, and the other 10% will struggle. So I'm saying um, not only can I help make you lose weight i'll make it easy and make it I, you won't feel like you're missing out yeah. you won't have the sensible salad and jealously have food envy about the person who's got the fries etc you'll go do you know i'm really quite um happy with how i am and if all i did was make more miserable thin people i'd have failed <laughs> because um uh, a lot of people now want to conform to this new ridiculous standard you know Fifty years ago, the gold standard of how a woman looked was Marilyn Monroe. She'd be oversized right now. So why now do these supermodels, there's less than 1% of the world has the genetic inheritance to look like a supermodel, why do we want girls to look like co-hangers? Let me ask you a question because I think that we're on the same page about a lot of these things, and I think you're dead right. It's about eating less and it's about exercising more, whatever that form of exercise is. But what I am curious about is your theory that it's not somebody's fault, because I feel like step one should be taking some semblance of responsibility, because it is your body, it is your mind, and no matter how you got there, it's still your actions. So what do you mean by it's not your fault? Well, you know, I think that's a really good question, because um, we, we're not disagreeing. It's, it's, um, it's, this is purely you know, um, um, a difference in the, the way of describing it. It's not your fault. But you see, I tell you why I say that because the weight loss clubs will have you believe that you didn't have enough willpower, and they can blame it on you. So you have to come back to them, and they'll be there as your salvation. That to me is a cult, right? That to me is an inappropriate use of of um, the prestige relationship where you're putting your trust in that, right? And I find that objectionable, as I'm an expert in human behaviour. And I wield my power of influence very carefully. And they don't. They're obsessed with money. 
In fact, their greed um, and their, their power and their fear of people like me tells me everything. And they should be frightened because um, I will expose them. I mean, I've just made some very powerful enemies exposing the sugar industry here. And they threatened me stupidly the other day. So, um, you know, that's the dumbest thing they could have done. Right. Because now I'm twice as determined. Now, let me say this as we go, Paul. This has been amazing. I've known Paul for a long time. I've seen him do this with my own eyes. I watched him do it to a studio audience with all these people. So I've seen, I've seen it. I've seen it work. And I will say, I've been to Paul's house in the Hollywood Hills. Paul's very, very wealthy, does not need to do this for a living anymore. He is doing it out of pure passion. You can see the fire in his eyes. So, Paul, I really appreciate you Skyping in with us from across the pond to share your wisdom. Um, I hope it helps somebody. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, Brad, I really appreciate you saying that because, um, uh, you know, it, I find um, uh, it kind of makes me mad when I see that people are, who are vulnerable, um, you know, that are overweight. That You know, when I look at somebody who's overweight, I see like layers of sadness or, or frustration. And I want to help them. Uh, these weight loss clubs don't. No. They just want to rip them off. And um, I, I, I've, I, this has been a passion for me um, all my life. My parents are incredibly um, morally decent people. I wish I could be, you know, um, you know sh even minute bit as, uh, as, as amazing as my mother and father. And um, uh, I, I, I welcome the opportunity to speak with, um, you know, the people that listen to you and tell them, you know, that firstly, you've got an epidemic on your hands. Secondly, um, these people are corrupt and they are wealthy and powerful and uh, they are clever. But um, what's happening is an expose is gently happening. You know, the, the, the sugar industry now is a little bit wobbly. Uh, the weight loss industry, uh, the hate your body clubs, you know, that are selling you low fat chemical rubbish. They are now getting exposed and the people that run it, they're all overweight, can't even stick to their own diet. Right. They're getting exposed. And I'm proud that they are, because for me, to have this amount of passion, if you ask me about sleep, for example, I'd be talking about all kinds of different ways you can go to sleep at night and how relaxing it would be. But when you start me off about weight loss, it's something that's very close to my heart. And um, I feel like you could you could talk about this all day. Yeah. And really, that's what my life is about. It's about giving people freedom, giving people freedom of choice. And thank you for inviting me, you know, to talk to, um, you know, your, your audience tonight, Brand, and, and to, you know, communicate with you again, because this is something that's been a real lifelong passion for me. Paul McKenna, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're putting up all your digits and how to get a hold of you and how to get your stuff. And really appreciate it, Paul. Thanks for Skyping in. Thank God you. bless. Paul McKenna. Yeah. Listen, I think that he's awesome. And I think anybody whose goal is to help other people lose weight and is coming from a really good place like that, I respect. And I think that he's done an excellent job, as his track record shows. I just think the it's not your fault mentality, the everybody else is out to get you, I'm the only person, everybody else is stealing my ideas. Right. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think there's more than one way to eat a Reese's. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I think... What I find fascinating about him and what it sort of fits into what I've been learning is that the 
deck is stacked against you from the start. Like I said in the in the opening, the idea that you're bi biologically you are programmed to move less and eat more. That is exactly how the human body is meant to do things. And so making different decisions is very difficult. And the industries out there are not your friends. They're not trying to make it so you eat less Doritos. That's not the way the world works. I get what you're saying, and I don't disagree, but these corporations, he's saying it works 10% of the time. 10% of the time is better than 0% of the time. I'll tell you from doing the casting on the shows, it's, it's rough because the mental damage that people that are really, really overweight have is, A, it's universal. I don't know that we saw, I mean, we were getting a quarter million submissions every single season. And I don't know that we would have saw one or two that were morbidly obese that didn't have some sort of serious mental sort of struggle, right? Like there was no sort of easy way to get to 200 pounds overweight. And it was gut-wrenching because we would go into finals casting on Extreme, or, and Extreme was even worse when we were doing Extreme weight loss because it was bigger people. And you couldn't take everybody. You'd have a cast that we would, you know, whittle down to 20, and at the end of the day, we're going to pick eight for this run or, or 16 for this run. And you realize that if you didn't pick someone for this show, that was it for them there was no way that they were going to lose the weight because nothing in their life had helped them thus far. No motivation was going to come magically coming in the next run. And so I felt a little bit like I was sentencing them to an early death or a miserable life or a continued misery by not choosing them for the show. And it was really emotional and really difficult to do. And even harder on the MTV show with these your kids where it's just like, oh my God, if you don't get on a TV show you may never lose the weight. This is, And they were so sad to begin with, and it's just like they were begging for help. And but so, it's better than not doing the show at all because yeah. you not being able to help a few of the people, okay, that is sad, but you are actually helping some people. Right. And that's what the important part is. Um, all right, so let's play a little bit of why I'm not and what I learned. Roxy, what did you learn today on the show? I did learn that is it is much less about, okay, just make a decision and stick to it. You know, you can't really will this. you got to yeah. figure out what's going on, which is an interesting thing for me, and I, I do think that I will look at the situations differently with that perspective. Hmm. What Christian? did you learn? Uh, what I learned is that uh, I'm not thin. I feel a lot better about myself than I used to. I mean, I was tired all the time. So yeah. I think to uh, Paul's point, it's like you have to find that thing that actually drives you to do it. Like, you know, sitting there and doing a diet will work for while you're doing that probably for a little while. But uh, still looking forward, I'm not really sure what I can do to get better. And I don't know how much better I'm ever going to get. Okay. Well, here... Here's why I'm not losing weight and what I learned today. Um, it, some of the stuff I knew going into this, I had a pretty good idea because I've been in the weight loss sort of industry quite a bit. But what really sort of stirred me as I went through and talked with Paul and JD and, and did a bunch of the research was you are alone in the idea of losing weight to get healthy and to get to the weight that you want. There is nobody out there that's really out to help you in the system. Paul McKenna, maybe. You know, J.D. Roth and his book, maybe. That's, that's different because they're not a system as such. When you look at the industry of weight loss, the industry of pharmaceuticals, the industry of the fitness craze, all of that stuff, 
you can't look to that because they are in it for what's good for that industry. Now, sometimes that's losing a little bit of weight, sometimes it's not. It really boils down to the actual decision that today is the day I want to change how much I weigh and accepting the fact that you cannot do it without major changes and considerations. If you don't have something big in your life that you're going to like a wedding or trying to fit into a wedding dress, if you don't get diagnosed at the doctor as having high blood pressure and you have to change your diet, if you don't have somebody in your life get some sort of serious illness and it causes you to wake up, to turn on the mental switch casually like a dimmer switch, not gonna happen. You need a major switch. So if you really want to lose weight, even some, you have to consider it a really serious task that's very difficult and commit to doing it because otherwise you're gonna fail. So that's my advice. If you wanna lose 20 pounds, you wanna lose five pounds, you wanna lose 10 pounds, you gotta take it super seriously because everybody's out to get you and to stop you. That's what I think. Roxy, where can people find you? You guys can find me everywhere at Roxy Stryer. Ooh, and Christian, how about you? At Christian DMZ is where you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. If you like the podcast, please go to iTunes and give us a little rating and maybe share it. And you can find out a lot more about the Why I'm Not podcast on whyimnot.com. Um, I'm Brant Pinvidic, and this has been Why I'm Not Losing Weight. You've been listening to the Why I'm Not podcast with your host, Brant Pinvidic. For more on this episode, upcoming episodes, or more from our podcast guests, visit whyimnot.com and subscribe for exclusive content, giveaways, and all the latest happenings. And for even more content, visit afterbuzztv.com. I shut them down.